Thanks, Austin. Good to have Austin Staley helping out with our students. I love that. Well, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, thanks for coming. And uh, I just want to echo what Austin said, to have so many of you uh, come and invite people and serve last week was just really a tremendous week, and so, so thanks a lot. You may have uh, felt a little bit uh, kind of clogged up as you got here today and maybe tried to check your kids in with the balloons and maybe wondered kind of what's going on. Are we having Easter again uh, with the balloons? And uh, basically what's going on, this is important for you who are parents or grandparents, is we are over this next month changing our kids' check-in system and some other database stuff that I won't bore you with. Um, but what we need you to do, every parent and grandparent, is sometime over the course of this month of April, we need you to check in at least one time this week, next week, uh, so on, at the computers with the balloons. Uh, there's some information to kind of transfer over. The first time you do it, it takes a little bit longer. Um, but once we have everybody transitioned over, by the end of the month, we'll just use one system and it'll be quick. It'll be just like it is now. So uh, we've got two computers that are uh, kind of the old system. The ones with the balloons are the new system. So just at some point, you don't have to be in a hurry about it, but at some point, check in on that new system and uh, we appreciate that. So thanks for uh, just bearing with some of that congestion. Um, one thing that's pretty cool related to kids that I get to talk about right now is that uh, my wife and I are expecting our fourth kid. Yes, we are. We're having a baby. Number four is due in September. And uh, Molly and I are excited and scared. Uh, you know, Jim Gaffigan's one of our favorite comedians. He says that, you know, having a fourth kid is like, he said, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby, right? So, <laughs> so that's a little bit of how we feel. But um, the last pregnancy for Molly was very uh, hard physically. And uh, this one seems like it's a little bit better, but we would appreciate your prayers. And uh, the question everybody asks is, especially when you have three daughters, <laughs> do you hope it's a boy? Of course. <laughs> That'd be great if it was a boy. And at the same time, I love my daughters and I wouldn't give any of them up. So if it's a girl, that would be great too. This time we're not finding out. We've always found out before, uh, but we're not going to find out. We feel like just the adventure and the surprise of it will be great. Plus, if you find out in advance it's a girl, then you tell people and they say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which usually when your daughters are standing right there is like kind of not cool. So we figure it'd be... If we're holding the girl, it'll be easier for you to go, oh, congratulations. So anyway, <laughs> so September, uh, she's due, and we're really, uh, really looking forward to that, um, and it should just be a lot of fun. So, you know, you, you think about having a baby, and of course, you think about boy, girl, you think about all the different stuff, but the thing that I know that we want, that all of you who have had kids that you want is what? healthy, right? You just said it. We just want it to be healthy. And that's exactly right. So please do pray for us that way. And uh, that idea that we want uh, our kids to be healthy, that's a great way actually to introduce this new study in the book of Titus. Because I think the theme of the book of Titus is healthy Christian living. And here's kind of what's gone on uh, in the story. We haven't started this, but sort of the background of what uh, takes us into the book of Titus is this guy, the Apostle Paul, has gone all around the Mediterranean and he's been starting new churches. And uh, he ends up starting a church on this island of Crete, which is right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, just a little bit south of where Greece is. He starts this church, he gives birth to it, right? And, and if you've ever given birth, it's hard. 
a lot of work and it's pain and there's loss and yet there's great joy along with it as well. And um, so he's gone through the hard work of birthing this church, but now he's going to keep traveling around and he's now entrusting this new church in Crete to one of his close associates, a guy that he's mentored and poured a lot of his life into, a guy named Titus. And really what you see in this book is Paul is writing to Titus saying, help my baby be healthy. Help my baby church have a healthy church life, have a healthy family life, have a healthy understanding of truth, have a healthy way of living that honors God. Help them be healthy. That's what Paul's desire here. And this, this theme of health kind of runs all throughout it. Today is sort of an introduction. We're just gonna look at Paul's introduction to the letter. But one of the things we're gonna see all throughout the letter is this theme of health. There's a word that comes up five times in this short little book, right? This is just three chapters, two pages if you're looking at your Bible. Um, two pages there, and yet th- this word appears five times. It's the word uh, that the ESV translators translate sound, but it's this Greek word, to be healthy. What does that Greek word look like? Hygiene, right? This is a book about, about Christian hygiene, if you will, how to be healthy, how to be sound, how to develop and grow. And what I love about that is that whether this is your first time ever thinking about God or church or reading the Bible, or whether you are like, you know, expert Christian, you need to be healthy. Health is what's going to help you grow. You're not going to grow more and more in your faith if you're not healthy. And so wherever you are, health is a big deal. And I just think about what's at stake when it comes to Christians learning to live healthy lives as followers of Christ. What's at stake there? What's at stake for our kids? The kind of faith we pass on to our children and our grandchildren. Is it a healthy one? Is it the kind where they go, you know what, they didn't get everything right, but man, I want to be like my grandpa. I want to love the Lord the way he did. Or is it distorted? Is it the kind of thing that they want to run from, that they have to recover from, that they need therapy from? A lot of you have been in unhealthy church environments, and you know the damage that that does. A lot of you grew up in unhealthy families where the family structure and roles were just all out of whack. Titus is, Paul's going to address that in this book. You know the damage that can be done if we're not healthy. And so that's what this book is really all about about. Now to be able to understand it, there's just some background you need to understand about who Paul is, who Titus is, and what Crete is, okay? So uh, the, the, the book starts, verse one, go ahead and look at it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now when we write letters, we put our name at the end. In these days, they put it at the beginning. And Paul says, here's who I am, I'm writing, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it's really interesting because uh, every time, well, not every time, but a lot of times in the Bible that someone has a real encounter with God, their name gets changed. And that's the case for Paul. Before he was known as Paul, he was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was this guy who was persecuting the church. He was a faithful, zealous Jew. And he believed that Christianity was distorting the Jewish faith, and so he was working as hard as he could to try to stop it. He was rounding people up, he was arresting them, he was overseeing their death and their persecution. And along the way, he meets the risen Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is an interesting thing to think that when people persecute Christians, they're persecuting Jesus. 
that Christians are the body of Jesus in the world. And so you persecute them, you persecute him. And God, uh, through, through Christ, knocks him off his horse. And he ends up going from being a church persecutor to a church planter. He becomes a pastor. He begins traveling around the Mediterranean Rim trying to start and champion new churches. And it's interesting that Paul there gets a new name. Now, this happens a lot in the Bible, right? Abram, uh, father, becomes Abraham, father of multitudes. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Cephas or Simon becomes Peter, right? Peter means rock, right? James and John, they're called the sons of thunder, right? Think about this. Between Peter the rock and the sons of thunder, it's like a WWE <laughs> tag team, right? And so oftentimes these names are becoming, you know, hey, you think you're small and, and weak, and, and I'm going to give you a name that's strong and it's bold and it shows you who you really are in me. That's kind of how God does it. But do you know what Paul means? The word Paul means small. Small. Not rock, not sons of thunder, not father of multitude, not big and mighty. Small. Why? Because Paul had gone down the big and mighty, I'm a big tough guy road. And he got humbled by the Lord Jesus. And so now he's small, small, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of God. That means he's a, he's a slave is what that means. He says, I am enslaved to Jesus Christ. My loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And though I'm enslaved to him, I'm also still, by his mercy, an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. This means he has this special role of establishing these churches. That's who Paul is. Now he's writing to Titus. And we see in verse 4 his description of Titus. Paul to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, Titus, he calls a true child, which is just simply his way of saying, like, this is the son I've never had. Probably Paul led Titus to the faith. We don't know that for sure, but it, it's quite likely. At least uh, Paul had this very important mentoring relationship. He said, Titus is like a child to me. And actually, when you read the scriptures, what you see about Titus is that Titus goes in when Paul has a really important job to do. You see it in Corinthians. Uh, Paul sends Titus because the church in Corinth is a huge mess and he needs someone he can trust who can provide some leadership and report on the situation. You see it when Paul wants to collect an offering and he has to send someone around to all these churches to collect this offering for the poor folks in Jerusalem. And who does he send? Titus. When he goes to, when, to replace himself in this church in Crete, which is a difficult, tough place to be, who does he send? Titus. Titus is this trusted guy. And Paul is writing to him saying, help this church get healthy. Why would he need to do that? Why would he need to write him this sort of a letter? Well, it's because Crete is a tough place. That's where Titus is. Uh, it actually says in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's where we'll look at next week. But, but it's helpful to understand this letter, to understand a little bit of the background of Crete. Crete was infamous. It was, it was this infamous place for its moral decadence. There was absolutely anything goes... No moral absolutes, no moral tethering of any kind, just whatever you want to do, go for it. That was Crete. 
Polybius, uh, who was one of the people who knew Crete in those days, said this, almost impossible, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. That was a Greek author. Another one, Cicero, you may have heard of him, said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. In fact, one of the industries that they were best known for was providing mercenary soldiers who could go fight on behalf of other uh, groups and people. Uh, they oftentimes would be hired as pirates because Crete was this island and they had this way. I, I, just, I don't know, pirates are always so funny to me. I, I never think of Cretans or Somalians. I just think of R, right? But, <laughs> but they were hired to be pirates. And, and a lot of the reason that they were so morally loose was because uh, they believed there that all of the Greek gods that were part of the kind of pantheon of Greek, what we would call mythology, but these Greek gods were, were born there. They had their origin in Crete. And if you know anything about the Greek gods, they were very loose. They didn't have a lot of absolutes. They would very easily manipulate one another, lie to one another, all that sort of a thing. And Zeus, actually, who's kind of the, the head god among this whole pantheon, they, they believed that Zeus was buried there in Crete, right? Because all of these gods were men who became gods. And so they believed that Zeus was buried there in Crete. Now, now Zeus was so well-known because he was so powerful, and a lot of his power had to do with his seducing and deceiving women. That's what he was known for. And that's why he was admired in Crete. Like, look at Zeus. He's so good at seducing and deceiving these women and taking advantage of them. They valued that, right? The, the idea of valuing women was very low. So we're happy to, to, to celebrate somebody who seduces and deceives and, and abuses women. And really, that should sound a little familiar because we're thinking about electing a guy like that for president. There's a lot about this Cretan godless world that Paul's writing to that's actually similar to our very godless world. That's like, you know what, if you can win, if you can take advantage of people, that's all that matters. The means doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how you treat them. That's what they valued in Crete. Paul actually addresses this, quotes uh, somebody, uh, a prophet of the Cretans, in verse 12, look down at chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul says, even the Cretans say, we're lazy, boastful, arrogant, no moral tethering at all. So that's the situation that Paul is writing into. Saying in the midst of all this moral chaos, in the midst of all of this pride, in this midst of anything goes, Titus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to establish a healthy church with healthy Christians and healthy families and healthy leadership. That's what we need. So what this passage does is it introduces this letter. Paul's kind of giving a, hey, here's the big idea, here's the theme of what I want to, to see happen as a result of this letter. And what we'll see in it is really three things, three aspects of healthy Christian uh, life that we're gonna see in this passage. So here's the first one. Actually, you know what, before we dive into it, let, let, me, let me pray. Um, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And uh, God, we ask now that you'd teach us, that you'd give us ears to hear, and eyes to see. God, we, uh, we want to be a contrast people. We want to be different than the world around us. We want to be healthy in the way that we focus on Christ. So help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, here's the first thing that we see in this passage is that healthy Christians know God's purpose. Healthy Christians know God's purpose. Look at verse one. It says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. That's what Paul's saying. This is my identity. I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. But, but then next, he says, here's why I'm writing. Here's my purpose. Here's what I want to see happen. I'm writing, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Why am I writing? I'm writing for the, faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So think about those three elements for a moment. This is what Paul, this is sort of a formula, if you will, for health, right? Faith plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness equals health. So what are these elements? Paul's saying I'm writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect. What is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is reliance. Faith is dependence on God. Right, when you're worried, when you're anxious, you're not exhibiting faith. When you're anxious, that's a good indication of the things that you are feeling self-sufficient about. You're not trusting God. So, so faith is trusting God, depending on God, relying on God, and specifically, faith in the good news of the gospel. Faith in that God has saved us by grace, by his mercy, not by our good works, right? So that's faith. Paul's saying, I'm writing because I want you to have strong faith. Second thing, I want you to have knowledge of the truth. I want you to know what's true and what's error. You know this, by the way. There are not, it, it can't be everyone's right. It can't be your truth and your truth and your truth. There's truth and there's error. Paul says, I want you to know what's true. I want you to know who God is. I want you to know who he isn't. I don't want you to believe lies about him. I want you to know about who God is, who you are, what the world is like, how salvation really happens, what a healthy family and church should look like. I want you to know the truth. So I want faith, trust. I want knowledge of the truth. And then last, godliness. All of these things, it says, accord with godliness or, or lead to godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is being like God. It's imitating God. So godliness is humility and love and joy and patience. It's imitating Christ in character. It's obedience. Paul's saying, here's what a healthy Christian life looks like. Here's why I'm writing. It's trusting God, it's knowing what's true, and it's living obediently. That's health. Now it's interesting to think about what happens if you change that equation? What happens if you take out one of these elements? Like what happens if you take out faith? Where you're not trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in your works, you're trusting in your ability to be good or be religious or keep the rules. So you take faith out of the equation, but you know a lot, right? You know the Bible and you know the 10 commandments and you know the verses and you know the do's and you know the don'ts and you know all that stuff cold and you're really trying hard to be godly. You're trying to be obedient. You're trying to do the right thing, but it's not driven by trust. It's driven by, I got to do the right thing, duty. What happens? You become not healthy, but you become a moralist. You're just about the rules, there's no vibrant, healthy relationship with God because you're not trusting God. You're just using God by trying to be a really good person. Right? Some of you grew up in church environments like this 
where there was a lot of emphasis on knowledge and a lot of emphasis on what you do, right? And so there were certain movies you didn't see, certain places you didn't go, certain clothes you didn't wear, certain music you never listened to. And did it make your relationship with God healthier? No. Why? Because it didn't have trust of God at the heart of it. So, Without trust of God, you can know the truth and you can try to be godly, but you're just going to be a moralist. Well, what happens if you, instead of taking away faith, what happens if you take away knowledge of the truth? So now I trust God, (laughs) but I don't know anything, and I'm going to try to do a good job obeying him. I'm an airhead. (laughs) Right? You're a cotton-headed ninny muggins, I think is what (laughs) Will Ferrell would call you. Right? So, So think about this. This is a lot of people who uh, they, they trust God. They've had some sort of experience that makes them go, oh, Lord, I love you. I need you. I, I, I need you, God. And I want to do what pleases you. But they never learn anything. They don't know what's true. They don't know what's not true. So if anybody's a good communicator, or if something, if an experience is really well done, or someone's just convincing Oh, yeah. Right? These are people who are very easily inspired. Oh, did you? I'll have people sometimes, occasionally, this doesn't happen a lot, thankfully, but sometimes share with me a video. It's like, oh, this was so good. This was so great. I love this. And I watch it. I'm like, that is garbage. It's lies. It's not true. It's, it's representing a gospel. It's representing a God that isn't true. And what the Bible says is that if you don't have knowledge of the truth, you end up like a person who's tossed in the waves. Right? You ever kind of go body surfing and you just get kind of out there and boom, boom, boom. Right? That's a fun way to spend a few minutes on vacation. That's a bad way to live. Boom, well, I read this book, well, I read that book, well, I saw this thing. Well, I, right? These are the people who watch Christian TV and don't sniff that it's a problem. These are the people who go, well, it's a Christian book, so who cares that it's by Joel Osteen? It looks good to me. No discernment. No knowledge of the truth. Now, in a sense, I appreciate these folks because there's a sincerity. I just want to honor the Lord. But we've got to know the truth, right? Okay, now what if we take away the last thing? Faith, I trust God, and I know a lot, but I don't care about obedience. I don't care about godliness. This is the one we're all most familiar with, the hypocrite. Our walk doesn't match our talk. And we know where that leads. And none of these are healthy, right? Some of you grew up in environments where it was a moralism problem. Some of you grew up in an environment where no one really knew anything. And so, you know, there wasn't after a while anything to even care about because everything goes. You went, I don't even need this anymore. Some of you grew up in environments where you just saw lots of hypocrisy. A lot of people would talk to a game and knew all this stuff. But when you actually looked at their life, you went, I don't want to be like that. Titus is a book that's about being healthy. And Paul says, I'm writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That's what he's writing for. Okay, so healthy Christians know God's purpose. But there's something else healthy Christians have to have be part of this equation if we're gonna really grow healthy. So here's the second thing. Healthy Christians trust God's promise. Healthy Christians trust God's promise. 
So, so think about this. We want to grow in faith. We want to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in godliness. What is all of that resting on? What's it standing on? What's the foundation that we're standing on as we think about growing in faith, growing in knowledge, growing in godliness? What are we standing on? That's what Paul is going to talk about here in verse 2. So he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, that's who I am. Here's why I'm writing, the sake of the faith, knowledge of the truth, accords with godliness. Here's what I'm standing on, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, I know there's a lot of words, a lot of theological language there. Just, just follow this. He's saying, I, I'm writing for your faith, knowledge, godliness, because I'm hoping in eternal life, which God promised beforehand. And God never lies. He's saying, listen, from eternity past, God has promised eternal life through his son Jesus. From eternity past, God has planned that he would save a remnant of people by his grace, that he would establish them in faith, that he would give them knowledge of the truth, that he would help them to walk and be more like him. That happened a long, long time ago. That's the basis on which I'm standing here. And specifically, he says, this promise of God of salvation, this promise of God of eternal life, this promise of God of the gospel, remember, God never lies. That's the God who made the promise. Now, you might stop and think, actually, why would Paul have to say God doesn't lie? I mean, duh, right? Like, of course God doesn't lie. Well, that wasn't an assumption that the people in Crete made. Because the people in Crete went, but gods lie all the time. In fact, that's why we like them. Zeus, he's a seducer, he's a deceiver, he's a liar. He's really smart. We should, you know, that's great. We like that guy. Paul's saying, no, no. The real God who promised eternal life on which all of your faith and knowledge and godliness stands, that God does not lie. But here's the thing. Many Christians, we say we believe in Yahweh, the one true God who never lies, but we act like we believe in Zeus. We say we believe in God, we act like we believe in Zeus. We say we believe in a God who never lies and doesn't change, but we act like we believe in one who I don't know if we can trust him. Think about this. A lot of us are just afraid that God is out to get us. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, is I'll, I'll be meeting with them, I'll say, hey, imagine for a moment that right down the hallway, God is in there, right? And he sends a messenger to knock on the door, hey, God would like to see you. When you go, here's the question, when you go into God's office, you go into that room where God is, what does God's face look like? What's his attitude toward you? And you know what most Christians say? They go, he looks pretty mad. It looks something like, come on, how could you do that? I thought you were supposed to be better. 
Right? That's, the, that's the way we pick, hey, God wants to see you. Uh-oh. Right? That's how we think. Yeah, I better be perfect. Why? Because we don't believe God when he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So even Christians who say, my only standing with God is on the basis of the finished saving work of Jesus, live as though that promise is going to be revoked. We live like we actually believe in Zeus. We bargain with God. Well, God, I'll, I'll do this if you do this. God, I'll give this amount of money. God, I'll attend church this often. God, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to these practices. God, I'll do this if you bless me in this way. If you come through for me in this way, right? And then when we don't have happen what we want to have happen, we get mad at God. God, how could you? Because we thought we were bargaining with Zeus. We weren't trusting a heavenly father who loves us. So we're nervous. I can't approach God. I'm not good enough. We try to manipulate him. We try to seize control of our lives, of our every situation. Right? And a lot of us, this makes sense, right? A lot of us grew up in a situation where you couldn't trust mom and dad. They weren't there for you either physically or emotionally or whatever, you couldn't, you got burned by a pastor or you got burned by a church or you got burned by a coach, you got burned by somebody you respect and you got burned by a spouse and you just think, if anyone's gonna look after me, it's me. It's me. I've gotta look out for me. I've gotta control my life. I've gotta control my situation because no one else will. And that may be what life has taught you. And you need the truth that that's not right. You can trust God. God is for you. God is on your side. God will never leave you or forsake you. He cares for you. So are you living like you trust Yahweh, the true God? Or are you living like you trust Zeus? Because with Zeus, you've got to negotiate. And with Zeus, you maybe can't count on it. And with Zeus, hey, you better cover your hiney because he's not looking out for you. But that's not who God is. Paul says from eternity past, God has had this promise. From eternity past, God has promised amazing things for you. So I want to take you to a passage, one of my favorite passages that describes uh, this promise. This is actually from Ephesians chapter 1. And in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul gives this giant run-on sentence. I'm going to actually share with you, uh, I don't know, something like 11 verses that are all one sentence in the Greek. It's like Paul saying, God's amazing in this way, 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 in this way. And he never stops. He doesn't catch his breath. And what he does in it is he helps us see, here's what God has promised in eternity past. Here's what God has promised for us. This is our hope. This is why we can grow in faith and knowledge and godliness is because of this. Here's what God is really like. Here's the real promise of the gospel. Ephesians 1. Paul again writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm, I'm highlighting all these terms. Think about this, right? We go, oh God, bless me. Oh God, bless me. He goes, I already have. I gave you every blessing you, you need, right? So, so maybe our prayer should be, God, you have blessed me. Help me to see it. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose you. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Listen, you were chosen to be his child. He picked you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants to pour out his blessing on us. What does that blessing look like? In him, we have redemption through his blood. Right? You don't die for people that you don't love. You don't lay your life down for people you don't care about. Jesus gave his blood. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Who gets an inheritance? Children of rich people, right? I don't know if there's much inheritance for my kids, but they'll get a nice organized stack of files to go through, right? So, so we've obtained an inheritance. You're a child of a very rich God. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the promise that you stand on. You've been blessed, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been lavished. The blood of Jesus has been poured out for you. You have received, once you've trusted in Christ, the promised Holy Spirit. He seals you, it's a guarantee, it's a done deal. What is God's face when you walk in the room? Every Tuesday we have a meeting and it's really fun when uh, my wife comes to the women's discipleship in the morning and when it's over, we're usually right in our meeting when uh, her, she picks up Mary and they come over to see me. And we're in the middle of this meeting in our kind of kitchen area back there and I'll hear out in the hallway, Dada, Dada, Dada. And I don't go, don't interrupt me. I, I get up. And it's so annoying to all the people in the meeting. I get up and I go out and I hug her and I lift her up and I kiss her and I bring her in and she comes in and she sits on my lap and she points at everybody. And it's just, it's like, this is my child. Paul says, healthy Christians trust that promise. And because they trust it, they can pursue faith, they can pursue knowledge, they can pursue godliness, not ever being worried that if I don't have enough faith or if I don't have enough knowledge or if I don't have enough godliness, God's gonna wipe me out. 
Instead, there's freedom, there's confidence, there's delight, there's joy because it's standing on an unshakable promise. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that make you go, I want to grow into this. I, I don't have to earn anything, I already have it. Here's the last thing that this passage shows us is that healthy Christians share God's plan. Healthy Christians share God's plan. This eternal life, uh, Paul said, was promised before the ages began and at the proper time it was manifested in his word through his preaching. Now this is interesting and I'm gonna kind of nerd out for a minute but that's okay uh, with you. Uh, Paul uses this almost exact same phraseology of promise before the ages began and manifested. He uses it almost the exact same way in the book right before this, the book of 2 Timothy. And both Timothy and Titus are written to these guys that Paul has mentored and that he's trying to help establish in their leadership. And so in the book of 2 Timothy, verse, uh, chapter one, verse nine, it says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And then this is where it starts to sound like Titus, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus. So to help you see this, it's helpful maybe more to see it side by side. So here's 2 Timothy, and here's Titus. In both, it's saying something was promised before the ages began that got manifested through something else, okay? So the, the, promise, manif- the promise before the ages began was God's purpose, God's eternal life, God's glorious good news of the gospel, right? That was planned before the ages began. How did it get manifested? How did it get seen? How did it show up? Well, in Timothy, Paul writes this. In Timothy, Paul says, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, right? Isn't that what you'd think? There's this incredible gospel, there's this incredible news, it's been planned since before time began, and now it's appeared how Jesus came. That makes perfect sense. Now in Titus, Paul says almost the same idea, but slightly different, and here's what he says there. There, he says, promise before the ages began at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. You go, what difference does that make? Here's what he's saying. The promise of the gospel came in Jesus and the promise of the gospel comes when we preach. That word preaching is the word that means heralding or announcing, right? When we announce, when we share the plan of God, when we share the good news, Jesus shows up. Do you get that? There's this great promise. Oh, God's gonna come. He's gonna, he's gonna reveal himself. He's poured out this great blessing. How do I know? Because Jesus showed up. Well, how do I know? Because I just told you. Preaching. Here's what Tim Chester says about this. He's a a British commentator, he says this, as you speak the gospel, eternity enters history. Christ is made present. On a cold day, you can see your breath. It forms a cloud in the air. It's almost as if something like this is happening when we share the gospel. With spiritual eyesight, we see Jesus himself taking shape. He appears and people meet him in our words. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You know what he's saying? Like, you go, out, you go outside on a cold day. That doesn't happen a lot here, but once in a while, you know. You walk out, and you're like, ooh, it's kind of cold. What do you do? You go, ah. <laughs> right, and you, ah. And you, sometimes you got to get the angle right. Ah. Right, and you see your breath. 
Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. When you share the good news of Christ, when you tell someone about the Lord, when you tell someone that, that God's goodness is, is come through Jesus, when you tell someone that you're praying for them because you know God is good, when you, when you speak good news to people, Jesus shows up. You know, you know what, I, need, I wish this world could just experience more Jesus. Yeah. So tell people. And what happens when you tell people, hey, Jesus loves you. Hey, Jesus died so that you could have a relationship with him. <sighs> he keeps showing up. What do we need in our RCs, in our small groups, in our communities that meet throughout the week? We need to meet with Jesus, right? That's what we need. We don't just need a place to vent our problems and, and tell about our week and talk about, we, we, all, we need that for sure, but we also need to experience Jesus, right? And that happens when we say, hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I know that you feel bad. And I know you feel ashamed. And I know you lost it with your kids this week. But listen, God loves you and he's for you and he's gonna strengthen you. Ah, Jesus shows up. That's what we need. And healthy Christians are those who, because they're standing on an unshakable ground, grow in faith, grow in knowledge, grow in godliness, and it leads to all these opportunities to speak Jesus. Think about it. If you're not driven by faith, if you're not very knowledgeable, and if you're not very godly, you're not gonna have many opportunities. But if you're grounded in that promise, and you're growing, imperfectly but growing, you speak. How do you do that? I, I know that that's incredibly intimidating. And I'll tell you, as much as a lot of you would say, I could never get up there and preach like you do, um, it's easy up here. It's hard interpersonally. It's hard when you've got a relationship with somebody you feel like, if I say something, man, am I gonna cost the relationship? Are they gonna think differently of me? How do you do it? Well, here's two things that have helped me a lot. One is, share your story. Just share your story. I can't tell you everything. I can't answer all your questions, but I can tell you what God's done for me. Right, that's what we experienced last week at Easter. Right, at Easter, there were all these people that were sharing their stories, being baptized. And you know what was happening? Just all over, <sighs> Jesus was showing up. He was here. That's why it was so powerful. Right? Share your story. Here's another thing that's helped me. A second thing is, is ask someone, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Ask your kid's teacher. Ask your neighbor. Ask the person at work, hey, how can I be praying for you? I know that may feel weird for even someone to ask, but I, you know, I pray for you regularly and I just, I'd like to know how to pray for you. Can you tell me? What do you think they're gonna say? The, the occasional person will reject that, but most people are gonna go, great. Uh, I don't, I, no one's ever asked me that before. I gotta think of something. Right, and now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to, to go back to someone and say, I'm praying for you. I love you. God loves you. He's showing up. Jesus just emerges. Healthy Christians know God's purpose, trust God's promise, and share God's plan. That's kind of an introduction. We're going to look in these coming weeks at what that begins to take shape as. But just imagine for a moment, what would it look like if the American church stood on that foundation and grew in our knowledge and our faith and our godliness? What would it look like? How could it change the world? What would it look like? How could it be if Gateway, if the, 
the health of our church wasn't determined by size and it wasn't determined by giving and it wasn't determined by all these other things that people want to measure. It was determined by people growing in faith, growing in knowledge, growing in godliness. What if your life was marked by that? What if what your kids grew up to think was, I'd like a faith like they had. That's what Paul's going to try to give us in this book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and uh, the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the unshakable, unstoppable promises of Jesus. Father, we pray that we could grow as we uh, go into this book in these next months. We pray that we could grow in our faith, that we'd trust you more, that we'd be less anxious, that we'd grow in our knowledge and our convictions of what's true, that, that we'd grow in our love and our patience and our kindness and all the things that would make us godly. Not because we have to earn your love or approval, but because we already have it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.